Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Welcome back to the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers of some very, very cool plant people to figure out what makes them tick why they do what they do, and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences. And as always, I am so thrilled to be with you today. I don't know when you're listening to this. It could be the day that it drops. I like to think that it is that you've been waiting with bated breath by your radio machine, your phonograph, or your cell phone, computer, whatever for this to drop. But if it's years in the future, if you're an advanced alien species listening back on this, hey, Glornap, I hope you're having a great week. That was weird and I'm leaving it in. Whatever. Um, Y'all, it's exciting for me when a guest reaches out wanting to be on the show. I reach out to people a lot and I'm like, hey, can you, will you talk to me? Will you be my, my new friend? But every now and then uh, someone says, I would like to be your friend. And that's really cool. So my guest today, Dr. Chris Martin, uh, messaged me on Twitter a few weeks ago, wanting to come on the show and talk. And it was really cool. And I wish more of you people would do that. If you are a plant people and you want to talk about plants with me, please shoot me a message. That's awesome. So uh, Chris is a professor in plant genetics and research and the associate department chair in biology at Bucknell University. Uh, he does everything from research nationally and internationally. He advises undergraduate students and occasionally graduate students as well. He teaches, he does a really cool YouTube series called Plants Are Cool Too. He has uh, been an actor and a actor. So we talked about everything from the reasons we get into education and academia and teaching to what that looks like in different types of institutions, what it's like to be a research professor in different types of institutions. We talked about life in general and how complex it is sometimes and uh, how kindness fits into all of that. We talked about the ways that acting and being an aspiring actor can influence the way you lecture and the way you educate and the way you act in the classroom. So this was a sort of a far-reaching, all-over-the-place conversation. If you, uh, you know, are familiar with the show, you're probably used to that. But it is such a good chat with such a good guy. Uh, Chris presents himself as such an empathetic and kind educator. I'm sure he is a wonderful mentor and advisor to his students, and and I've enjoyed just getting to be his friend. So without too much more blabbering, I'm going to stop talking at you. I'll see you at the mid-roll here in a little bit. But for now, let's jump into this wonderful conversation with Dr. Chris Martin. All right, y'all. Well, we're back with another episode of Planthropology, and uh, I am super excited about this one. I'm here with uh, Dr. Chris Martin, who is the David Burpee Chair in Plant Genetics and Research, the director of the Manning Herbarium, the host of Plants Are Cool Too, and a ramen enthusiast mm -hmm. at Bucknell University. And uh, we've been Twitter friends for a little bit, and it's, it's so excited to get to talk to you kind of face-to-face. -face. How are you today, Chris? Doing all right. It's also really on my end very exciting to, to be here and to be chatting with you thank you so much for having me yeah you know uh it's it's fun getting to meet 
different people in the field. And I was I was actually looking back at some of my previous episodes and guests, and I shockingly have had not a lot of actual botanists on the show. Like lots of horticulturists, lots of people that are sort of a tangent to plant science in some ways, but only a few like real life botanists. Huh. And uh, I I always and I and I I want to open with this because I always give my um, students a definition of horticulture. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause I teach intro horticulture. It's mostly undergrads. Most of them are non-majors and have only ever basically seen a plant. Yeah. Uh, and they ask me what is horticulture? And I tell them it's applied botany. Hmm. Like we take botany and we apply it to growing systems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you think? How how would you break down the difference between like horticulture and botany before I, we get into you specifically? <laughs> yeah, I think botany is one big, inclusive, welcoming umbrella, to be honest. I think anybody that studies plants is a, is a botanist. Um, I think any any kind of science in which plants are the focus is really botany. And then I see really there then all these other sort of subfields sort of below that giant umbrella. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the way I see it. So I would say that horticulture to me is a sort of a subdiscipline within the gr- the grand scheme of, uh, of botany, like okay. as you've sort of described. Right? Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah. So that sort of leads us into talking about you and how you got into Mm. studying plants and being a plant person. Can, can you give us a little bit of background on you? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Why sure. or why do you care about plants? Can do. Yeah. So I was born in the, in the great state of New Jersey. It really is a great state despite what you might've heard, but it's a, it's a really, <laughs> it is a cool spot. It's super diverse in terms of ecosystems and habitats and, and biodiversity. So it's a good place. It's a good place. Yeah. So that's where I grew up. Um, you know, I was like a, a young child in the, in the seventies, an adolescent in the eighties, a college kid in the nineties and a sort of PhD student in the, in the aughts. So you know, I've really lived, I've really lived those decades, right? Yeah. There's plenty of pictures of me in, in plaid pants and turtlenecks, but also <laughs> parachute pants and upturned collars. And then throughout the nineties, lots of big pants and flannel, right? So really, yeah, there you lived, go. I've really lived Vikram. Yeah. So born in New Jersey. Um, I, uh, my folks did not go to four year college. So I was, you know, uh, coming out of high school, ready to be a, a first gen college student, had no real clue, like how to navigate that and, and what people do in college. But I had spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid and a lot of time out in the yard gardening with my mother and fishing with my dad and hiking and all those things. I just didn't know you could do nature, right, as a, as a career. Mm-hmm. just had no idea, right? So went to college undeclared, thought maybe I'd be an actor. I went on auditions and had an agent for a while in Manhattan and did that for a little bit. And then uh, eventually figured out that what I really needed to do was sort of get into sort of e- ecology and, and nature-based kind of study. Um, and I became a, a major in natural resource management um, with a focus in, in conservation ecology and forestry. And did that at Rutgers University. Took me a few years. And then... Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing wrong with that. No, no, nothing wrong with that at all, right? Not a linear path at all for me. It was pretty twisting. Um, and graduated, you know, with a, with a BS in natural resource management and got a seasonal job with the New Jersey Forest Service. And I had b- done a bunch of like teaching assistant stuff at, at Rutgers as an undergrad and really knew I loved educating people. And so the job I got as a seasonal employee was was really like taking kids out into the woods and teaching them about the forest and about trees and shrubs and nature generally. Mm-hmm. I really learned to love that, right? As sort of like K through 12, but also adult stuff. Um, and so that I parlayed that into a full-time job with the Mercer County Soil Conservation District. And anybody out there that may not know about soil conservation districts, they are awesome places to work, great places to have a job. 
And I did that for a while. Half my job there was, again, sort of this public education piece. Um, but uh, I realized that if I wanted to sort of move up in agency work, that I should probably go back and get my master's degree. And I started that part time at Rutgers. Um, and just as I it really hit me when I was like now a master's student, that everything I was reading in textbooks was um, somebody had to figure it out. Right. Like yeah. all these things I took for granted as being just like common knowledge. Right. Somebody <laughs> actually had to figure that out. And so this idea that I could actually become a person who generates new scientific knowledge kind of like smacked me across the head in my mid twenties. And that's when I decided I was going to go get my PhD and, and go be a professor. And really with a focus on knowing that I really, I did really, if we could talk about, right. I knew I was sort of headed towards the undergrad education kind of aspect of that because that part of it is so important to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I went to the university of Connecticut and that's where I got my PhD in botany. Um, and then, you know, became a professor. Wow. Yeah. So you've, you've done, it, it's cool because you've done a little bit of a lot of things in the field, mm. right? It's, mm. and it's all been, I think, focused in, sounds like, you know, conservation, education, that kind of thing. But it, it's cool. And this is something that maybe people don't understand sometimes about graduate school and about the way that we do uh, science. I tell people that, you know, for our undergrads, we're just teaching them the information. And our master's students were teaching them how to do the scientific process. Yeah. And then for PhD students, it's kind of teaching them how to do it for themselves, how to run their own lab and, yeah. and, and uh, sort of dissect bigger questions about whatever all this is uh, kind of on their own. Yeah. Oh. And I think it's good and really interesting to have like a common, I don't know, interest, a common goal for yourself and then come at it from, maybe multiple points of view. I think that's important as we educate ourselves and build a worldview around science. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of, the, the sort of North star for me, I guess, throughout all of that was an understanding that I really was passionate about biodiversity and conservation. And I wanted to tell people about it. I wanted to inspire other people to become equally as passionate about that. Right. And so the education part of that was always sort of this thing that I was following and it sort of, you know, didn't always matter what capacity I was doing that in. It was just that I kept following that right path and eventually got me to a place where I feel like I'm living a really good life. I'm super happy. <laughs> so. That's that's awesome. And it's such a good message for, I think, students to hear. People that are starting out their careers, either academic or otherwise, that it it's hard to see sometimes as you're going through the process, what the end result is going to be. And I think it's hard to see sometimes, even if you have a lot, you know, you mentioned earlier on that even just starting your master's and getting into it, you had this idea that you wanted to do undergraduate education, that you wanted mm -hmm. to teach people, but, but the, the path to get there is always weird. I don't know. Circuitous yeah. side. I don't know. It, yeah, it's right. challenging. And, and I think, it's helpful to hear maybe early. I, and that's something that I wish I had heard more early in my career that like, Oh, look, each next thing you do is a step towards where you're going to end up. And it's, you can't, you can't see the yep. end goal always, but as long as you kind of maybe keep it in focus that uh, I can do this for six months, I can do this for two years because it's right. going to lead to the next thing. I think that's an important and powerful message. And that you might actually discover something during those times that, sets you in a path that you had never planned for to begin with. Right. So that's, I think we, you know, there are, yeah, there's people who show up for their first day of college and at the age of 17 or 18 and say, I'm going to be this and they do it linear, boom, bam, they go, they, yep. they, they go do it. Right. And, but there's also lots of us who've ended up, you know, with pretty good lives and satisfied careers 
who didn't do that, right? Who along the way just sort of, you know, figured it out and got to a place, right? Both are possible and okay. Yeah, that's super cool. Well, talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about some of the research you've done along the way. Because I know you've spent some time in Australia. You've done a lot of field work. Yeah. And uh, what, what was that like for you? What kind of things were you looking at? Yeah, I, I, so right now, I would say my lab has sort of two main threads. One is sort of um, the Australia thing, which I'll say, say more about in a second. And then the other is um, really sort of like applying conservation genetic techniques to um, trying to um, help sort of assess the status of rare plants more locally, right? Lar- largely in this in this region where I am in Pennsylvania in the mid-Atlantic U.S., um, the Australia stuff really was, you know, began with my PhD work at the University of Connecticut with, with Greg Anderson there. And it's really a focus on nightshades. So these things in, in the genus Selenum, these are uh, kind of most closely related to eggplant, if anything, in, in, the, in the group um, that's cultivated. And, um, you know, these spiny Selenums that live across the Australian monsoon tropics in northern Australia. And so I started studying this group as a PhD student, did my dissertation on it and have been working on it ever since. Largely because these these wild eggplants that are out there are doing all sorts of really interesting things in terms of their reproductive biology, um, and we can talk about more of that more of that if you want. But mm-hmm. what it's been is you know almost twenty years now of this like really fertile ground for me to you know keep developing cool projects that are either sort of phylogenetics, phylogenomics, or pop genetics, or like new species descriptions, or thinking about pollinators and seed dispersers. So like, I just can't quit this group of plants. I love them so much. I know them really well at this point. And like you said, I've been able to go and visit them lots of times. So we're currently planning, this will be my seventh expedition to wow. the Northwestern Australia uh, this June. We've been ha- have to put it off for two years, but it looks like we're going to get it done this year. That's super cool. Yeah. That's super cool. And, and selenums are such a fascinating uh, group for sure, group of plants. And and for those of you that don't know, yeah, it's eggplants, tomatoes, um, potatoes, peppers. Uh, what else am I missing? Yeah, all um, the, yeah, those would be all things in that nightshade family, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, and some maybe some lesser known cultivated things as well um, in in the genus. But yeah, that's mostly what you got there: tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants. Okay, well, so okay, so I have a very specific about question about selenums for you because. Yeah. You're the expert, so I'd like to ask you. Mm. Um, we have a, uh, a very common, I guess, perennial weed, Selenum uh, iliagnifolium, silver leaf nightshade, or or uh, what else do they call it? Horse nettle, a couple other, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it is the best I can tell essentially indestructible and immortal. <laughs> uh, we, had, we had a little high tunnel here that the cooling system went out on. Yeah. And – I'm I'm in Texas. It's yep. five thousand degrees, you know, all the time. And I went out there one day, and it was about 153 degrees. I literally, I mean, I took a. It was 153 degrees in this little high tunnel. It had they hadn't been watered. <laughs> they are flowering and fruiting and perfectly happy. Uh-huh. Like I, uh-huh. I, I have decided yeah. that these things are going to survive the apocalypse. Yeah. Um. I read a study or I read an article talking about trying to back cross some of those genes from. Mm some of these more um, uh, drought tolerant, heat tolerant, adverse condition tolerant wild nightshades into some of our solanaceous crops. Do you know much about that? Is that something you could talk on? Yeah, I don't know a lot about the efforts to, to do that per se, right? But 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 I do know that that, that sort of 
hybridization, right? That the, the possibility of crossing between different species within this genus is is actually uh, possible in a lot of groups, particularly when we have these like subgroups, right? So there's this one group called the spiny selenums that that Uriella agnifolium is in, that also my Australian ones that I study are in. The, this mm-hmm. other one horse nettle that people might know from other parts of the North America, Selenum carolinense, is in that group. And these are like mega tolerant things. They 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 sort of thrive under disturbance, right? The ones in Australia are often, um, uh, often respond pretty well to fire and other mm-hmm. disturbances. They do well in droughty conditions, super heat, like they're crazy tough, right? So cultivated crops that are sort of in that group, say eggplant, for instance, there's a pretty high likelihood we'd be able to, to, to sort of move some of that tolerance into, into that crop from, from lots of different things in that group, including perhaps even agnifolium, which is such a crazy wide, it's everywhere, right? Gro- mm-hmm. glo- globally, it's an invasive species and does very, it's a weed everywhere, right? Just, you can't kill it. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> apparently not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's so interesting because I, I'm, I'm very much not a geneticist. That is like, I am a put a plant in the ground and see how it does if we don't water it kind of guy, right? Like, uh, very much an applied scientist, but the, the whole concept, and especially for those that are unfamiliar of finding specific genes that we need or specific traits. Let's, let's talk about it that way. Like heat tolerance, like drought tolerance, like all these things, and maybe leaving out some of the things we don't want, like the, you know, toxicity (laughs) of some of these and crossing them back into things that we use in production, things that may, um, extend, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, mm-hmm. uh, make us more resistant as a production system to climate change and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a fascinating um, sort of area of study and area of focus that I think is poorly understood by the vast majority of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're right though. Like you don't always get just the good, right. You might move in. So there, and there's lots of things in that they're called the nightshade family because it pulls the shades down on your eyes, right? Some of the, spe- <laughs> some of the species make you feel not so great. Some might right. even make you really, really sick. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's not possible with, with all those things, but it is, a, it is an, an, like, there's lots of possibility there, right? This, this, you know, we're, yeah. And that's why it's so important, I think, for us to continue to describe new species and to protect the species we know about and, you know, all these things that we can do because we're, we're protecting biodiversity for its own sake, but also for the potential for things like you're describing. You know, I, I like that you say biodiversity for its own sake. That's actually a conversation we had uh, in class this morning, just a couple mm-hmm. hours ago as we record this. Uh, talking about, we were talking about pest management. And um, I like to tell, I, I use that IPM lecture, integrated pest management lecture, to make the point again that, at least in my opinion, nature is sort of, sort of morally neutral, right? Like our, our insect pests, they're just trying to complete their life cycle. They need something to eat too. And it's the impact on us that makes them a pest or, or whatever. Um, and, and as part of that, we get to have this conversation about nature's intrinsic value versus it's like human utility. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we are prone to look at things one of those ways more than the other way, you know, but, but I think that as humans, we kind of have to balance that, right? We have to figure out how do we, preserve sort of the autonomous whatever value of something versus how we can use it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's absolutely that for sure right and it's kind of it's interesting sort of in the group that i work in it's um 
there's a few species that have been used traditionally in Australia by Aboriginal people that are in the group that we study, but there are many others that um, either we don't know that they have been or that actually are like things that you wouldn't want to touch or eat, right? And um, sort of, you know, those are to me just as interesting and important to study as any others. But I often get people saying like, well, what's the point? Why are you studying, right? Plant, you know, and, and is it, if it weren't things that you could say breed you know, into crops, then why, why bother doing these things? Right. And, but, but to me, the, the notion that there's all this stuff out there still to learn and describe and discover is pretty awesome. Right. So that's one of the things that keeps me going, right. Why wouldn't we want to know all the amazing critters that we share the planet with? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, research is tough (laughs) and uh, in a lot of ways from funding to the execution, everything else. And it can be a lot of fun and it can be very, fulfilling but i think when you when you build a research program and you build uh sort of an area of focus there's so much that goes into that and mm-hmm. and there's the people that and I, I don't think there's a right or wrong like i think there's the people that pick the the one tiny thing to study the this i'm going to look at this one interaction between two genes or whatever and they spend 50 years looking at that one thing and then there's the more ecology level folks and everything in between and and i think being able to um sort of put it in perspective that all stages of that process and all stages of um, or, organism, organismal biology and everything else is really important. And, and we can't have one without the other. Yeah, I agree. And I also know that my own sort of, you know, ADHD and curiosity combined makes it so that I'm constantly following my, these little curiosities, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. well, wouldn't it be cool if we if we could figure that out, right. And this thing, and then say, Hey, you know, student a, like you, you want a project, like let's go down this route. Right. So it's like, so my sort of broad interests and, and, and just the way my head operates, right. Has kept me asking lots of those different kinds of questions and, and wanted to focus more broadly, right. Natural history and ecology and evolutionary biology. And it's all exciting to me. Right. So yeah. Oh yeah. It's all very cool. Yeah. It's all very cool. Um, so that I think that kind of uh, leads us into the, sort of the next topic. And, and you, uh, something that I think is really cool about your position and your university is that you are, are you 100% undergraduate? Like you, you work with completely undergraduate students? We, yeah, Bucknell University is what we would call PUI, primarily undergraduate institution. We do have a small master's program. Um, okay. So even in, my, in biology, with the department that I'm in, we usually have about five master's students at a time. But we usually have something like 300 undergrads at a time. Right? So we're really, our focus is undergrad education and also undergrad research, right? So most of us are doing research with students and most of the students in our labs are, are these undergrad students that we're working with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting, like, I don't want to say challenge. That's not the word I mean, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting, maybe, t- maybe it is a challenge in a lot of ways, uh, yeah. Yeah. but but it's an interesting, I think, focus on academia. And, yeah. and we were kind of, just chatting briefly or, or via email about how academia is not the same for everyone. Right. And I think if you especially are on academic Twitter, which is mm-hmm. a, probably a space that both of us exist in to a certain extent, mm-hmm. it gets presented a lot of times as like this monolith of yes. everyone. Academia feels this way and this way. Right. And if you're dealing with this or not, blah, blah, blah. Right. 
Can you talk a little bit about your experience as an academic that primarily works with undergraduate students? Sure can. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, thank you for saying that, right. The, the, the academic experience is way more variable than I think most people give it credit for. Right? We often sort of hear like academia is this way or that way. And the trouble with academia and what often people are talking about are, are really thinking about the R1 kind of research institution, right? There's only a couple of hundred, a couple hundred of those here in the, in the U S mm-hmm. and then there's like 1200 other universities, right? That are not our ones, right? And that's right. what most of us are getting our jobs. That's if you're getting a PhD and intending to go into higher ed, the chances are way higher that you're going to end up at a school like mine, right? At an undergrad focused institution than it is. But somehow we sort of imagine that the only option and the only type of academia that we can sort of imagine and talk about is, is that other sort of really small proportion of, of what folks are, are going through. And so my experience, you know, both here at Bucknell and I and, um, before here, I, w- I taught at uh, in the State University of New York system at SUNY Plattsburgh. And okay. those have been similar in lots of ways, but also dissimilar, small state school versus small liberal arts college, private liberal arts college, right? So that's another thing we can chat about. But, you know, my experience has been that that this is such an, an incredible opportunity to to sort of get people at the beginning, right? To inspire uh, people to, to, first off, appreciate science, but also maybe even make it a career, right? Or, or whatever, right? If you're going to go pre-health or you're going to end up sort of in, in a research grad school or going to go off and get a job doing something at a uh, anywhere, you know, with a with your bio degree, mm-hmm. um, it's like every day is an opportunity to be that person that inspires somebody to sort of head in, in that other direction. Something that was so important to me as an undergrad, right? I can't even imagine where I'd be had I not had some profs that really sort of got into my head and and inspired me to do things and think about things I had never thought about before. Um, so, I, you know, I, I get to do that every day, or at least I have the potential to do that every day, right? Sure. I love it. That's awesome. And and I think that one of the hardest things to do, and again, I'm about to use this term in academia, like it is a monolith, uh-huh. yep. but but maybe maybe it's not just in, in our academic setting, but in life in general, is, is how do we measure the impact of the things that we do? Yeah. And that's and I think that that's something we should constantly be personally that I try to constantly ask myself that is like, in what ways are the activities I'm doing having an impact? Uh, mm-hmm. It could be on one person, it could be on a larger scale, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, I think, as much as evaluating impact. And, and I think that you're so right that, you know, I'm, I'm at an R1 university or almost, you know, we're right there. I don't know. Uh, we do a lot of research. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff that happens. Right. Um, now that's not necessarily my position specifically. Like I don't do a lot of research personally, but that pressure is just sort of, in the air uh-huh. <laughs> of yeah. uh, funding and, and right. journal impact factors and, and grant writing and the list goes on and on. And I don't want to like get down too too down in the weeds about that, yeah. but I, I like the way that you think about, I think measuring impact. I think it's similar to the way that I try to approach education is like, look, you know, this is, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to teach them everything about everything, but you can have an impact on an individual life or on a group of students or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is, and this is why I, I, you know, I teach non-majors courses as well. And that's exactly why, right. Maybe just, you know, get something into somebody's head that just makes them appreciate and want to support science for the rest of their life or sometimes make them even want to 
you know, pursue it. Right. But, but it is a very different sort of uh, animal. And, you know, and, and we still, that's, I mean, the other sort of popular misconception is that at the undergrad institution is you don't do research, but what we really do. Right. And again, that's also not monolithic. The, the primarily undergrad institution is there's very variable within that category, mm-hmm. but lots of places you have, you know, expectations that you're going to publish, that you're going to yeah. at least, you know, try for external grants and, you know, and maybe get them right. And, and often publishing with students, which is in itself, uh, a challenge while also maintaining a really high uh, profile as an educator. Right. So, so, you know, place like here, um, we are, uh, you know, we're expected to publish, we're expected to do good research. We're expected to include students in that research and yeah. uh, we can't get away with being a bad teacher either right? so, <laughs> so, because your teaching load is a, is a big deal. Right? I, I teach five courses a year and wow. that's, that's, um, you know, somewhere in between, you know, there are people who teach, many more than that per wow. and there's lots of folks who teach way less right at, at other kinds of institutions but um but you know the expectations are pretty high and i, and I often say that I, I actually think these jobs are 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 really challenging right they're not they're not easy positions because you sort of have to live in, with your feet in the in both of those places sure. um, but it's just a different kind of challenge right if i was at an r1 i'd have a very different set of challenges. no, no neither job is probably easier or harder than another but it's sort of a matter of you know your priorities yeah, your your focus is always different, I think. And yeah, priorities is a good word, I yeah. think, of uh, you know, one, what do you personally prioritize? And two, what is prioritized for you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. It's probably a major part of any job, yes. really. Yeah, that's right. You have your your own sort of compass, and then there's your boss that says, Okay, well, you're missing north, maybe just a little, but <laughs> I think that um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but these are di- these are different kinds of animals for sure than the R1 environment. And, and I really do encourage people to sort of seek out these opportunities. If you're thinking about a job in higher education, um, you know, like I said, your chances are way higher that you're going to end up at an at a undergrad place. Right. And these are these are really good jobs. Right. And it's such an opportunity to make a difference every day. Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots of different types of opportunities depending on the type of place that you apply to or end up at. But I'm always happy to chat with people about those sorts of things. One of the things that happens, right, is we all come out of, if we're going into higher ed, we all come out of these R1 institutions with PhDs, right? So we're learning how research gets done in that environment. Our guys, our advisors are coming out of that environment, our expectations that we will then do the same thing, right? And so I think the saddest part of this whole conversation is the fact that many people are dissuaded from applying to anything but those high, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? These are one sort of high profile kind of places. Um, and, And those can be great jobs, right? But there's also lots of other ways to be really happy and continue to be active in your field and do research and then also teach lots and lots of students. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, such a good point. Such a good point because you hear all the time, oh, the job market's so thin. I'm like, okay, maybe you're, you're, and I hear that all the time. Oh, there's, and, and it's, and it's true. Like, I think that there are more applicants than jobs and, and probably in our fields, but at the same time, it's like maybe cast your net wider too. Like, don't, don't yeah. be so narrow on the way we look at it sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Lots of opportunities out there. I'm not, yeah, to your point, I'm not saying that there are necessarily as many jobs as there are applicants, but there are certainly way more PhDs coming out than there are jobs that are ones. That's absolutely for certain. So a hundred percent. Right. So, you know, look, if, look around a little bit further and you, you may find there's other opportunities out there. And so, yeah, that's cool. and they're good jobs. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I think this is a good time. We'll take a quick break. Um, the roll? Are we already to the roll? We're already to the roll. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. I, Twenty, like you said, half an hour. It's we've been doing this almost half an hour. Uh, it it goes fast. It goes in yeah. a hurry. When we come back, we'll talk about. I want to talk a little bit more about um, some of your research in you know conservation genetics, a little more in a little more detail, maybe sexual plant systems, all those things. Yeah. Uh, but I also don't want to let you get away without talking about YouTube and SciCom and some yeah. of the other. Uh, things that you do great so we'll take a quick break we'll be right back stay tuned well hey there welcome to the mid-roll i'm excited to see you here again you know i i say that every episode i think it's a little creepier every episode but if you're here that means that you've listened to the first half of the episode and i appreciate that thanks for sticking around i hope you stick around for the second half isn't chris great I think Chris is great. I could have talked to him for way longer than the time we had. But real quick, I wanted to talk to you about some planthropology stuff. How about some housekeeping? So first off, thanks so much to our sponsors. Forest Proud is a nonprofit organization that focuses on forest-based climate solutions, and they work to link uh, industry with education and the public and everyone in between and they talk so much about this collaborative effort we have to fixing our climate crisis largely through trees and forests so go check out forest proud at forestproud.org they'll be sponsoring the show for the next couple of months at least maybe longer we'll see how much they decide they like me and if you go to forestproud.org slash shop and use the promo code planthropology at checkout you'll get 10 percent off your order and i think that's pretty cool thank you as well to the texas tech department of plant and soil science for sponsoring the show and being a part of everything that is this show and for letting me do this show it's so cool that I've got such a supportive college and department and department chair. So thank you so much again to Texas Tech and the Department of Plant and Soil Science. Thank you to you for listening and for being a part of this. If you'd like to connect with Planthropology, I would like for you to do that too. You can send me an email at planthropologypod at gmail.com. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you didn't like. Whatever. Just be nice, maybe. Uh, look me up on social media. Planthropology is all the places. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Search for Planthropology. There's some variation because people beat me to the name in a couple of places. But look for the green background with the bristlecone pine. And hey, that's me. On Facebook, we have the Planthropology's Cool Plant People Facebook group, which you should also be a part of. And if you are so inclined, go find me as at the plant prof on the Twitter machine. You can find me and what was it? whatever was left of my dignity there. Also, for the month of April, if you go to podchaser.com and look up Planthropology and leave me a rating and review, um, Podchaser is going to donate 25 cents for every podcast or episode review left on the website to World Central Kitchen to help feed Ukrainian refugees. It's such a great cause. It's part of their annual reviews for good campaign. So this is for the entire month of April. If you'll go to Podchaser, look up Planthropology or any of your other favorite shows, honestly, and leave a rating and review, 25 cents per review gets left or donated to World Central Kitchen. 25 cents for every review gets donated to World Central Kitchen. As an added bonus, my hosting company, Buzzsprout, where I host my podcast, is also matching 25 cents for every review left for a Buzzsprout podcast, which is really cool. I also will be matching 25 cents for every review left for Planthropology and my podcast network, Podfix. Go go check out Podfix 
as well, is also going to donate 25 cents for every review left. So for every review you leave for Planthropology, a dollar gets donated to World Central Kitchen. And I think that is such a cool deal, such a cool thing. So go hit up podchaser.com, look for Planthropology, your other favorite podcast, leave a review, and let's do some good in April. Finally, speaking of the Podfix Network, which by the way, shout out to the Podfix Network for, for being such a great group of shows. I have so much fun uh, with these folks just making podcasts and all those things. It is a group of indie podcasters. We all create our own stuff. We're still very much independent, but we get to work together on a few things and we get to help promote each other and just be friends. And it's real cool. One of the new and upcoming shows on the Podfix Network is the smartest podcast on the planet, hosted by that guy, Chad. Chad's a good guy. He's that guy, but he's that guy in the very best way. So if you would be interested in being on the smartest podcast on the planet, I know a lot of y'all that listen to this are podcasters. Hit up Chad at at smartest pod on the Twitter machine and check out the upcoming trailer and casting call for smartest podcast on the planet. It's going to be a great time. You'll get to do trivia and compete against other podcasters. Uh, We did a trivia thing um, in the Podfix Network for March Madness and it was so much fun so much fun so you want to be a part of this especially if you are a podcasting human and if you're a human that just likes to listen to podcasts we'll add this to your player and it will be something you'll very much enjoy so so go check out all the things hit up our sponsors find planthropology on social media go leave a review on Podchaser. get ready to listen to a casting call and a trailer for the smartest podcast on the planet in five four three two one Hey there, podcasters, influencers, YouTubers, basically anybody with a fan base. How would you like to join me as a contestant on my new trivia podcast, the smartest podcast on the planet, hosted by that guy, Chad. Every content creator out there wants to be the best. Well, here's your chance to prove it. I'm calling for any and all content creators out there to go head to head on my show and prove that you are, well, the smartest. Challenge your friends. Challenge your co-host. You can even challenge your supporters. I don't care. If you want to be a contestant on the show, send an email to booking at smartestpod.com. That's booking at smartestpod.com. Do you need to get a pen? That's fine. I'll wait. That's booking at smartestpod.com. You know what? Better yet, just go to our website, smartestpod.com, and click on the guest page. And I know that you're wondering if the smartest podcast on the planet, hosted by me, is any good. No, it's not. It's awesome. The smartest podcast on the planet is not actually the smartest podcast on the planet, but it is the smartest podcast on the planet, hosted by that guy, Chad, and is a proud member of the Podfix Network. All right. Well, we're back, and um, can, I, I like it's, like I mentioned before the break. I, I would like to get into some of the uh, nitty gritty of some of the actual research you do in in conservation genetics and mm-hmm. and um, all of that because I think sometimes I I've gotten a comment a couple times from listeners that like, oh, I really want to deep dive into whatever topic the mm-hmm. guest is here for, and mm-hmm. you know, we have an hour. And it's, yeah, right. it's hard to do that sometimes, but I would like to hear a little bit more in detail um, 
about conservation genetics? Like, what does that mean? How do you study it? And what kind of things have you looked at? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the more exciting um, turns that my research has taken in the past four or five years is that um, we are now working closely with uh, 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 the botanists who sort of are working on the ground here in Pennsylvania uh, through the uh, heritage program, right? And here it's particularly the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. And, you know, what it, it turns out that, you know, these bodies, these entities in all these different states have these lists, lots and li- lots of plants on lists, right? That sort of need attention and need projects. And we want to sort of reassess them and figure out what their, what their real status is, right? And, ha- and how best to protect them. Mm-hmm. And the, the folks that are doing that work on the ground really know the habitats, really know the plants, but don't necessarily back at their offices have a lab set up to sort of do any kind of genetics work that might be applied to sort of a better management strategy for some of these rare plants. So we've been working really closely with folks here in Pennsylvania on trying to sort of do that, right? Um, they sort of, it's, it's really cool. Like these partners sort of say, this is a plant we're interested in knowing more about. It's got a weird distribution. It's got, you know, like small populations. We're unsure about how to list it. And then we sort of come in and say, okay, let's do the field work with you and collect the the plant specimens. And then we're going to do a big pop gen analysis on this. And we're going to find out, is this, is, are these populations inbred? Are these populations exchanging genes across the whole state? Are these things that are really isolated or might have low genetic diversity? And then we have this really cool picture. Like then we know, okay, A, how many of these plants are actually on the landscape and B, what's their genetic condition? And now we can say, oh, okay, like, right, like, here's how we can best now take care of this rare plant as we move into the future. And it's just such a lovely, like, combination of things that we're able to do together in collaboration between sort of a higher ed so kind of genetics lab with undergrads doing some of this work and being trained on this. And then the sort of practitioners that are sort of doing the actual conservation and making the management plans. That's really fascinating. And, and I think, you know, the, the genetic side of that is really interesting, too, that how, you know, from from how stable are the genetics of this plant or like, uh, you know, how specific are they? And, and I think sometimes I think this is an interesting point, too, at least from my perspective, that a lot of plants look the same. <laughs> and and I know that sounds like, well, yeah, duh. But but I think when you get out there and really start looking at different species of plants or different subspecies of plants and things like that. Yeah there's a lot of plants that look the same. And if you weren't really getting into the genetic side of it, you know, we may be losing entire species, races of plants and, and uh, subspecies. If we don't know specifically what's out there. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah. And so we're in an interesting spot in Pennsylvania because we're, we're kind of a state and I'm learning this here because I didn't grow up in Pennsylvania. I've only moved here a decade ago, but we're kind of at this spot where there's a lot of things that reach their Northern edge of their range in Pennsylvania. And then a whole set of plants that also reach their sort of Southern edge of their ranges. So we're in this kind of neat spot. So there's a lot of plants that are common in other places that are relatively uncommon here. So, you know, a, a couple examples, we, you know, Cheyenne Moore um, was here as a master's student and worked closely with Scott Schutte at Western Pennsylvania Conservancy and Angela McDonald, who was the postdoc at the lab at the time on mm-hmm. Bethesia australis, the blue false indigo. It's a okay. really common plant in cultivation. It's relatively common in, in sort of some great plains and kind of prairie type habitats. And we have, you know, a a dozen populations here in the state of Pennsylvania, more or less all in one water course, right? One sort of river basin, really two. But And so this was sort of one of these ideal, like it's common in lots of parts of the, the North America, but what about here on the edge of its range, right? These edge populations can be really important to sort of know something about. And 
you know, Cheyenne did all this work and, and, and found out that, um, you know, they're, they're, the way they're operating as populations is a little bit different than we imagined. And, you know, now we have kind of a whole new way of, of thinking about this plant and its status in the state, which is exciting, right? It's a really cool thing that we're able to do. Yeah, no, that's that's really super cool. And I think mm-hmm. that, again, an important way to look at it, that uh, some of the like preservation of this unique or not even unique, but uh, important germplasm and important just because yeah. it's part right. of the ecosystem right. is really cool. It's really good work. And it's, yeah. you know, detailed feet on the ground, looking at plants, like kind of stuff. And yeah. I, I, I like that. I think that and any day I can be out looking at plants is a good day. Oh, amen. Yes. Yes. Same. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I love it. I love yeah. It. Um, no, that's, that's really, uh, really pretty interesting. Um, Something that, you know, we haven't really talked about is your work as director of this herbarium. Mm, yeah. Uh, what all does that entail? Yeah. So we are, you know, one of many institutions in the world that have a, a relatively small natural history collection. We have a, a herbarium here that uh, has about 20, probably 25,000 specimens in it. Wow. Largely representative of our, of our region of the world, right? So we have lots of stuff from Pennsylvania, from this particular area of Pennsylvania. But we've also had some really neat collections in the past, right? So the the person who established the herbarium, Wayne Manning, was a global expert in the walnut family. So we have tons of cool walnut specimens from all over the world, right? That is and cool. My predecessor was a was a, a, um, a goldenrod specialist, Warren Abramson. So we have lots of goldenrod specimens, right? So, okay. so we have some really special, and uh, increasingly we have lots and lots of Australian nightshades as well, of course. Um, but it's cool. Like it's one of those things that is um, an interesting aspect of maybe being at a smaller school, being sort of like the one or one of, you know, a couple of botanists in your department. Cause if you're in an undergrad institution, you kind of end up representing your, you know, the, whatever discipline you're in, in that program. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm, you know, the, I teach botany courses and I also help, you know, direct the herbarium. Right. And so like, it's like this botany thing that we're doing here and it's, it's cool. We have students that are working in there right now, helping us to mount plants. And, um, I, you know, I love that aspect of it. Um, Mm -hmm. we, we don't do a single study without collecting and, uh, mounting and depositing voucher specimens because everyone who studies plants in the wild should do that and we do it all the time and lots of those things end up in our in our collection so it's it's been really fun very cool and i think a lot of people probably don't realize that there are physical pressed mounts in these like that that are that we use commonly in in the field right like we are preserving actual literal materials <laughs> that's right all the time right and and this week we had a really exciting week because we're um we're working on two new species descriptions for um a couple nightshades from northern australia and uh whenever you describe a new species you have to designate uh, a holotype right which is basically like the specimen that represents this species name right and somebody can always go back to that specimen and, and know what the new species should look like and so just a couple of days ago i was mounting the the, the holotype specimen for one of these new species and you know that's happens in our herbarium it'll at least for a little while be stored in our herbarium and, and so these these reference specimens are important for in so many ways right as even as data points, right? What 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 did the biodiversity on our planet look like at any given time? And you can go back to these natural history collections and see. Yeah, that's that's so cool. And we'll actually be talking to uh, Matt Johnson uh, oh, from here great. at Texas Tech. He'll be on yeah. in a few weeks talking about awesome. the herbarium here at Texas Tech, and yeah, we'll cool. dive a little bit more into that. But then, no, it is really 
really important. And and yeah. digital copies are great. Digital copies of stuff are great, but there's something mm-hmm. about actually seeing like a, a mounted specimen that's still Heck really yeah, cool. There is. Heck yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um so I'm I'm just looking at my notes and seeing, you know, which direction to go next because you've got uh-huh. so many interesting things to talk about. Yeah. Um so okay, let's talk a couple of things here. Uh, I want to jump into science communication because that's yeah. something you do a lot of is like mm-hmm. informal uh you know outreach communication those kinds of things and so why don't you start off and tell us about uh your youtube channel plants are cool too sure yeah so i've got this channel called plants are cool too it is sort of i would call it sort of mini documentaries about cool plants and the people who study them uh and we've been doing this for about a decade there are 14 full episodes on on the channel and so awesome. you know we're not pumping up we're not pumping out 10 a year or one every day kind of a thing <laughs> um it's not um meant for uh sort of the tiktok kind of um turnaround time right um but you know it sort of started as a project about a decade ago when i was just looking around and not seeing a lot of plant content not a lot of plant sort of video visual content at that time and that's long enough ago that you know like people were just, I, you know, even at that time, people were sort of still just sort of watching, just starting to watch a lot of YouTube, right? Even It wasn't yeah. the monster it is now, but yeah. um, it seemed like the right place to go. I spent a little bit of time trying to sell the idea to a PBS station and then trying to get it into the oh, wow. network of PBS. And that's actually how I met Paul Frederick and Tim Kramer, who are the, the guys I make the series with. They are were sort of like PBS vets from the Adirondack region. They actually overheard me pitching this to, to the, <laughs> the head of the of the station up there. And afterwards, they're like, hey, come here. You know, like <laughs> that's funny. It's funny how it works out, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're great. So we've been making this series together for for 10 years. We sort of traveled all over the country to do it. Most recently went to Hawaii and, and did a couple of episodes out there. Um and it's just been so much fun, right? We featured lots of really great scientists and, uh, you know, I, our, our kind of total views on YouTube are somewhere around the 200,000 range, which is not, awesome. not massive. Right. I know even by TikTok standards today, the people are in the millions pretty quick. That's wild. But, but it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good. And they're, and they're longer format, right? We're, we were yeah. talking earlier about like attention spans and, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to sit in that 10 to 15 minute range and, um, not everybody sits through even that much, right? So we want to make these really high quality kind of things that really pay tribute to the the science behind it and to the people that are doing the science. And uh, I've loved it. It's been great, you know? So, you know, I'm probably doing, you know, one a year. You sure. Know, you can do the math, about one and a half uh, <laughs> over 10 years. Right. Um, but it's just been such an awesome project. And I think if, you know, it's just a thing I'm doing in addition to all the stuff I do as a as a professor at a university. And so it's it's been great. That's yeah. that's really awesome. And it's mm-hmm. I've watched a couple episodes now. I'm trying to get through the whole catalog, but mm. you know, I, I find that the times that I can sit down for 10 or 15 minutes at a stretch, I have a six year old and <laughs> everything else, and it's they're few and far between, apparently. <laughs> um yeah. but yeah. uh yeah, no, that's it, it's really a great show and a, and a great channel and something I think that you know anyone who enjoys this show yeah. will enjoy that. I'm pretty sure. I think you're right. I think it's the overlap and sort of folks that would listen to, to your awesome podcast and, and watch our, our channel would, is probably um, pretty big, pretty big overlap. Right. And I, so, I, yeah, yeah, I would think so. And I think, I, so I've got a couple of follow-up questions on yeah. this. So one, you mentioned that early in your career in your academic career, you were wanting to get into acting and you had mm-hmm. an agent and all those things. Does this kind of scratch that itch for you a little bit? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of, um, 
yeah, I did that for a little while. I was in a band, sang in a band for a long time. We, you know, we sort of, I was co-running a small indie record label for a little while. So like I was dabbling in sort of the, the world of like maybe being an entertainer. And sure. I think that, that not only does this scratch my inch, but so does every day I get up in front of a classroom. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the YouTube thing, I'm really interested. I mean, it's, it's partly my interest in science communications and, and using different forms of media for that. A lot of that is, I think, that sort of background in, in being, you know, not, not minding getting up in front of people. Sure. And maybe a little bit of wanting to be in the spotlight at times too. Right. So there's a little bit of hamminess in me. And I think that is what has driven me to continue to do that. But, but I want to use that, right. I want to use that to sort of turn the spotlight really on, on plants and biodiversity and on other folks that are, that are doing great work. So that's kind of been the gist of, of that show. Um, um, we, you know, typically I'm not focusing on research that I'm doing or my lab is doing, but it's what sure. somebody else is working on and I get to go drop in and, like learn about it. Right. And that's, what's cool. really cool. It's really cool. And uh, you, you, you said something a second ago that this is a uh, kind of maybe going back a little bit to our conversation from earlier, but you said you get that every day standing up in front of a classroom. Hmm. And that is to any, any like perspective educator out there. That's hmm. actually such a good message hmm. because if you get up in front of a class and you are, reading off a slide and monotone. And if you're not performing just a little bit, just a little bit, it is real hard to keep people's attention. It is real hard. Right. Right. That, that, and you're absolutely right. Right. There is a lot of performance there. Right. And, and I don't want to scare anybody off. Who's like, I well, no, I'm not interested in theater or anything. So why would I be a professor? But you know, some, there's an element of that. Right. But I think what's, what's, I think what's really germane here is that um, the emergent, property of caring about your work and being enthusiastic about what you're teaching is that you come off as being engaged, right? And you become engaging because of that, right? So so I think that's like to assuage anyone's worries about whether or not they can sort of cut it in front of a classroom for the rest of their life, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if, do you care about what you study, right? Do you care about biology and the things that you're into in your research? If your answer is yes, then it's probably going to come across when you're in the classroom, right? And that's, that's, um, that's yeah. when students really respond, right? That's when they stick with you. Yeah. And, and just, you know, and from my personal experience, I think just being able to like being willing and willing and able, I guess, to just sell out to it and yeah. just be as much of a nerd about it as you want to be. Yes, yes, yes. This is uh, my, my lifetime permission card in my wallet for being a total geek about something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's my job. I got to be. You know. Yeah, you don't have a choice, right? Because right. if it, and this is good, this is a good, and this actually ties in really well with the science communication portion of it too. Is that like, if you don't care about it, wh why should the people you're talking to care about it, That's right? Like, right. if you're not excited, like it's real hard to get excited. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. But here, but here's the other thing that I've learned after you know, I don't know how long I've been almost 20 years as a professor now, but I, you know, pretty consistently I am teaching stuff that I'm learning in order to teach it. Right. Like, you know, because even just keeping up on the literature or even just knowing like from year to year, what the new things in a given field are. Um, and that's the other thing that really drives me is that I, I, that I reason I know I, I'm going to keep doing this because I'm still so fascinated by, you know, learning new things personally and almost can't wait to get to the classroom to share those things. Like, well, you're not going to believe this study that just came out. Right. And here's why it's amazing and interesting. And I want to share that kind of stuff. Right. And so I think I'll know that I'm done with this sort of 
career when I don't feel that way anymore. Right. And so, but I guess my point was like, there's also a lot of like new learning that you do as an educator that sort of just keeps finding its way into what you're presenting. And that's good. I think we should, especially as educators should never stop actively learning, uh, actively finding new things. And, 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 you know, that comes along with testing our assumptions about stuff and, Mm -hmm. and uh, reevaluating. And it's, it's, Fun. I think it's fun. I enjoy it. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So a question I always like to talk or something I always like to kind of chat about with people who are in science communication Mm -hmm. um, and who work in a formal educational setting like you and I do. Uh, Is it related in any way to your actual job? Does your university like, Mm -hmm. are they supportive of it? Do they care that you're doing it? How does that like, how does that work out for you? Yeah. Yeah. I would say yes. Right. And I've heard some folks on talk about this in in previous episodes of your podcast about whether or not that gets acknowledged. Right. And I've heard people even say, no, it does not. Right. But, but Mm -hmm. I'm here to say that it can, right. That that there, that particularly in the, in the, and I'm not going to say not all any R1s, but particularly in the undergrad institution environment, um, if you're doing cool work and you're bringing attention to your, your institution, and especially if you're promoting like undergrad experience, undergrad research, and you know undergrads learning cool things, then then institutions appreciate when you do this work, right? They appreciate that you're out there. They appreciate that you become sort of a, a you know any kind of face of your um, discipline because you're also representing your institution at the same time. And so what I've seen is lots of folks be able to do science communication and sort of broader academic communications generally. And, and that be something that's, um, you know, celebrated, right. And something that, um, that institutions are really happy to have happen. Now, does it mean you also don't have to do the traditional sort of scholarly things that, you know, were typically measured upon? No, right. We're still going to publish papers. We're still going to try to get into good journals. We're still going to submit, you know, grant proposals and that sort of thing. Um, but right. Um, if you are also a really good communicator and if you're finding a way to do outreach and, you know, if you're out in the local schools and inspiring the kids that way, right. Those things are, 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 are things that folks like, right? So mm-hmm. I think I think a, sort of across the board in academia, generally, if you're doing that stuff effectively, and you're also sort of managing to do some of the more traditional scholarly kind of stuff, then then you're you're in pretty good shape, right? Um, and increasingly, right, we're starting to see folks that whose careers are being or is are being a science communicator, <laughs> right? And that's yeah. right. That's really cool that we're now seeing like people actually sort of have positions in which science communication is the basis for what they do. And that's really that to me is super, super exciting. That is that is very cool. And and sometimes I <laughs> I'm gonna be real honest. Sometimes I look at some of these people whose entire career is science communication. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why why not? And I realize that I am like I'm an educator. I, I get uh-huh. that. Right, right, right. But, but you're yeah, jealous. But, you're but some days I'm like, why not me? Right. Yeah. Like I want to do that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. It's, it's, it's kind of cool, right? It's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it is. It is very cool. So, okay. Uh, d- related to this. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you have a pretty like sizable Twitter presence and you, you do a lot on Twitter and you're very involved in these communities and, and with other scientists and stuff. Um, and, and I like, you've been a lot of fun to be friends with on Twitter and just kind of get to, you know, these weird parasocial relationships we get into these days. And like you make, Oh, so my Twitter friend said this, but like I've just started saying my friend and I just claim people (laughs) whether they like it or not. Um, Okay. We have to talk about coffee pot ramen. Mm, Yeah. We can, we cannot (laughs) not talk about coffee pot ramen. 
<laughs> there are people you, who will now be turning it off. People who don't like the whole coffee pot ramen thing. Will pause. <laughs> so, okay, what happened? How how did this whole thing happen? Why are you a little bit Twitter famous for coffee pot ramen? Uh, I, you know, as a grad student at UConn, I had a coffee pot that was like a drip coffee pot, right? And yeah. I guess I just realized I could just put the ramen noodles in the bottom of that pot and run the water into there and it would cook them. Right. And so that just doesn't seem like that big, right. It's like, wow, that's a fit. Like you're talking about that's, that's efficiency. That's like a good way to, you know, both have yeah. coffee in the morning and lunch at lunchtime. <laughs> and, um, so I just started doing it, but what, I guess I realized, I don't know, you know, I actually looked and I think it was like eight years ago or something it was the first time I ever made a post about it. And it got all this response like, wow, that's, cool and then other people that said that's absolutely gross and then so it just became it grew, grew into this grew into this thing right and i think what a lot of what drives it is that my my friend carlina hayduck at university of hawaii who's really active on twitter mm-hmm. hates it and so people will basically like promote my posts about coffee pot ramen almost as a way to sort of instigate a response from, from Carolina. <laughs> so it's sort of become this fun back and forth, right? But um, it's so, funny that that's it's like a weapon. It's like a Twitter weapon now. <laughs> right, right, right. I, and I thought like I'm going to start heating up other kinds of things to see just see if it works, right? It's like a hot pot kind of. Yeah. And um, I tried a couple others and it's just not quite the same, right? Like, because if you have to add water to something to heat it up, you're just watering down whatever you're. Right. So you end up watery and warm um, rather than like hot noodles, which is ramen, right? <laughs> if you, Okay. If you ever write a memoir, can it be called watery and warm? Because that's just, that's just hilarious. Yeah. Maybe, maybe hilarious, maybe gross. equal parts two things can be true (laughs) oh man no it's just and it's it's funny because our i think it's an interesting just look at social media Mm -hmm. because little things like that take on a life of their own and it's just so weird when it happens and it's a lot of times it's not the stuff you expect Mm -hmm. like you put all this time and effort into like oh i'm gonna really come up with some good information i'm gonna read papers i'm gonna put out a really and then it's just this throwaway like me on tiktok one day yelling about broccoli yeah that apparently becomes a thing and i don't know it's so hard to predict what sorts of things are really going to get legs right but um yeah and but i you know honestly i still like twitter that that idea this whole ramen thing like it's fun right but it it is in one of the things that 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 sort of shows me how much that has been become an important outlet for me and just in terms of networking, right? It's professional networking, but it's also like connecting, right? With mm-hmm. people in your, in my, your field and people who have similar interests. And that's so important, right? It's been so awesome to, you know, finally going to go to an in-person botany conference this summer, but to, to have gone to past conferences and run into people, right? Like if you and I were to see each other, we'd be so happy to see each other in yeah. Right. And I've had lots of those experiences where people I've never actually met face to face. I'm seeing and going, oh, my gosh. And you have this immediate connection and you're in this in-person conference. And suddenly there's all these folks that you sort of feel like you're already kind of friends with. Right. And they're all sort of in your field. And that's that's a great way to feel right. I work with awesome people and I can't wait to see them is is cool. Right. But there's also this like incredible power in terms of science communications and also the, the, the sort of spread of science, right. that, that I feel like Twitter, at least right now is sort of unparalleled, um, in terms Mm -hmm. of that ability. Um, 
And I, so there's lots of things to point to, but you know, Tanisha Williams is the current postdoc in my lab right now. And she's part of the crew that started Black Botanist Week a couple of years ago. And yeah, and to see sort of the power of, of, of Twitter as a medium to sort of promote ideas and people and put spotlights on on people in that case folks that not maybe not everyone was aware of and now like you're like oh my gosh of course like these are what an incredible movement and like all this increased awareness from that but there's a lot of power there right and that's that's also the other thing that's really amazing about it right it's that uh we can build communities but we can also sort of promote science and scientists in, in great ways right now of course tiktok's a whole other deal and I, oh, I had told myself I was going to have a TikTok account by the time I talked to you, but I'm not there. I just don't <laughs> know if I have the energy to, for another platform. But um. yeah, you know what? I, I got on TikTok or I think I've talked about this before, but I got on TikTok originally because I was bored. Yeah. Uh, over the past couple of years, I get bored. I, I have to be doing something. Yeah. And the mindless like just scrolling on TikTok uh, for whatever reason filled that void for a little while uh, instead of doing yeah. productive things with yep. my life. I was yep. like, I'm going to, yeah, you know, watch this guy. T- I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually I was like, okay, if I'm going to be on here, hmm. I might as well use it for right. something useful. And, it, and it's actually been fun. I had yeah. a couple of videos blow up recently, which is again, always a little weird and unexpected. Yeah. And it, it's the things where I react to like a video of, of, five minute crafts or someone doing stupid stuff mm-hmm. with plants or where I show off the doodles. I have my um, students draw yeah. on their exams. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Those are what people <laughs> wanted. So <laughs> some days I'm like, I should yeah. be doing like real, yeah. like hard education. And it'll get like a thousand views. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah. And I'll, I'll yeah. yell about broccoli and it gets like a half million. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's that's a weird nuts, thing. But that's, that's really cool. Right. And so what I'm noticing, like increasingly, like my students, my daughter, for example, like every day sends me, uh, you know, a link to it, a, a TikTok post where she's learned something cool about a plant or something, right? And she's only learning it because she sees it on TikTok, and then she shares it back with me and says, "Hey, Dad, you right?" I'm like, "Oh my god, this is like exactly why I should be at least putting some kind of content there, right? Go where the people are." Has always been one of my own personal mantras, and I'm I'm slow on this one. I'm slow on this one. It's all right. It's yeah. it is a. It, it, as compared with any other social media I've ever done, it's a weird animal. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a weird one, strange yeah. beast. Yeah. Um, but it's fun. It's all fun, and it's it's uh, again. I think like, like you say, and I think that's a great uh, a great quote is "Go where the people are." And, and mm-hmm. education, if we're if we're really serious about making education accessible and yeah. and all of that, it has to be where the people are. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, and so uh, part of part of me wants to just leave it there, but I, I have to ask you the question I asked. Oh, uh, my guys. Yeah, let's. Yeah, yeah. yeah we got to do it yeah. um, because that that was actually a pretty good period. But we're just going to keep going. So uh, um, if you had if you had something you wanted to send home with people, right, if, mm. if there was a piece of advice, life advice, academic advice, I don't care. Uh, you know, maybe don't eat the nightshade you find on the side of the highway. Uh, what would it be? What, what would you like the listeners to keep with them? Mm, yeah oh there's a few different things in there one is i think <laughs> that um you know one of the things that that has has been the, the kind of messaging that has has gone well we do a lot of science communication stuff in the lab beyond making plants are cool too we also are always kind of trying to find cool angles to promote the work we do in the in the, mm-hmm. in, the in the lab 
And so we do a lot of kind of, you know, we write, we sort of write press releases, we put stuff out, we try to sort of, but one of the things that I think that has really resonated with folks is, is how many lessons there are in, in nature that sort of um, help us understand our own place uh, in the world. Right. So I guess that's sort of like one thing I would say is that sort of look to the natural world as a way to sort of think about our own place in it and the context that, that we exist in. Um, you know, we had a, uh, a, a species we described a couple of years ago that we ended up calling Solanum plastisexum. And it was, um, hadn't, had been collected for like 40 or 50 years, but never described in par- partly because it was sort of like, it, it moves between a bunch of sort of sexual expression, types of sexual expression. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we cited that in the paper as being really interesting. Right. And then as an example of how life on earth generally, right. Is really difficult to fit into really clean binary sort of sexual conditions, right? Like it just Mm -hmm. actually does not apply over most living things. Right. And that in itself is like an interesting lesson to think about, right. That Mm -hmm. sort of just really clean male, female thing is kind of all over the place when you look at the organisms that populate the planet. And, you know, that was a a cool, that was a message that we sort of ran with on this thing. It got us a really nice story in the New York times. It ended up, you know, having us collaborate with this really cool artist who built a whole art exhibition around this plant. And, um, you know, I think sort of, so I guess my takeaway there then is not just sort of look to nature as sort of a way to see our own experience in context, but, but also be maybe willing to sort of, if you're working in science or working in education to be willing to sort of think a little bit outside the box, right? Don't, don't sort of, don't be afraid to um, sort of also be a citizen of the world in addition to a, a working scientist. And that's something that's, that's worked out pretty well for us. Um, I, I, I would hate to say we're sort of politicizing our scientific results or we're sort of putting some sort of like um, non-objectivity on, on our results. But we're, we're, we're often also just trying to find ways to connect people to the, to the science that we do. And sometimes it's, it's, it's making those kinds of connections, right? So that's been successful for us. And and it's important in any way that we can validate people, any way that we can, uh, uh, like you say, ch- sort of tie people's individual experiences back to the bigger picture mm-hmm. by using our science. And and you know, I don't know if political is the word I would use, but it it is maybe pointed sometimes. And I think that's important. I think it's something we should be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah, cool. And the other thing I, I was like just thinking about as we were sort of sitting here, the other message I, I, is that it's going back to that idea of the the primarily undergraduate institution and folks that are thinking about potentially wanting to be professors and go out there. The the thing that kind of um, can often make you stand out, right? It is some sort of sense for who you are as an an educator, right? Um, so. Um, you know, everybody that's coming out of a PhD and a postdoc has papers. Everybody's got grants. Like, so you sort of almost have to imagine that everybody's coming in with like a really hot research statement and a CV with papers on it, but not everybody is coming in with a really good teaching statement with a really, like, even if you've not done Mm. tons of teaching, who are you? Who would you be as an educator, right? Why is that? Like, so, you know, and those are the folks that, you know, at a school like mine, when we see your application come across, we're like, yeah, all really good researchers, but who speaks to this, right? Who actually knows what kind of place this is and can say, this is why I think education is important. And here's who I'm going to be in the classroom and as a mentor to undergraduate students. And not everybody does that. So if there's like one hot tip in terms of job market stuff that I love people to have is like, you know, that if you apply to a place like ours, make sure that's there, right? Because that that's how you stand out in the pool. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I did like get away from us earlier that I wanted to talk about before we before I let you go. If you mm. if you've got a couple more minutes, sure do. Um, 
I want to talk about undergraduate mentoring because I think that's an important thing that, and I'm, uh, you know, I may, I may move this up in the podcast. We'll see. Yep. We'll see where it ends up. Um, you, you just mentioned in, in what you said, undergraduate mentoring and, un, and mentoring students. Yeah. Um, what is that like? What, what is that mm-hmm. for you? And just in your experience, what does that look like for you? Yeah. What do you do to effectively mentor an undergraduate student? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And it, sometimes it's different, right, depending on, on the students. But sort of, you know, the way that um, I've tended to sort of do things is, um, you know, first off, it's sort of a matter of recruiting students, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of students are going to come to schools like this, right, e- expecting that they're going to have have the potential, at least, right, the possibility of, of being part of a lab at some point. And so for some mm-hmm. students, that might be one semester. They, they come in, they learn how to do a technique, and that's like, that's a, that's what they want, right? And they said, okay, I spent a semester learning how to do something. Some students are going to join a lab for years, right? I have students mm-hmm. that's, so I've had students that spent more time in my lab than my master's students as undergrads, right? And then they basically do almost master's level work. Um, and I think there's kind of two ways to go about this and ways that I've seen this, right? It's sort of when the, when the PI has sort of like a main area of research that they are doing and students are plugging in at different levels of that, right? So you're, you know, you've got senior level students that really know what they're doing and they're kind of training undergrads as they come through. And there's this sort of almost like um, stepwise progression through the lab that is contributing to large studies Mm-hmm. where the same kind of data or same kind of experiments are, are, are being done. Um, and then there's sort of the other way where sort of like students come in, they join a lab and then they get individual kinds of projects. Right. And I've tended right. to more lean towards that side of things in part because okay. I have lots of interests and, and I want to sort of, you know, as a botanist, right. Um, we're kind of at, at a, a bit of a disadvantage in, in many ways in biology departments because very few students are, go- are declaring a bio major as a 17 year old, because they want to be a botanist, right? Most right. <laughs> many want to go to med school or PA school or nursing school. Some are like, yeah. Yeah, I really love animals. Right. And then there's the almost in a, a non-existent student who comes in and says, I'm doing this because I want to study plants. And so, mm-hmm. you know, those are the, I want to sort of bring some folks over to the green side through that process. Right. But um, sort of, plugging into student interest and saying, what interests you the most about biology, right? And then trying to find a project that sort of matches, matches that interest. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that, that you know, for me, for, uh, what I will say, here's, this maybe does answer your question, is that for me, the outcomes are great, right? It's awesome mm-hmm. to get a student on a paper or have a student present at a conference or, you know, what those sorts of things. Um, but the baseline awesomeness is just them doing it at all, learning how yeah. to do science, being part of a project, right? That's already like awesome. It's something that I didn't get to do as an undergrad, right? So yeah. just having a student be part of the, a lab group and be, and be doing the science is already enough. And all that other stuff is kind of, you know, gravy. But I can all, also say that because I'm tenured and I'm a full professor now, right? So, like, <laughs> you know, I don't, you know. Yeah. There are times in your career where you're like, you know, I have to have this paper. Right. But, yeah. But it's awesome when students are, are also a part of that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you get to be and I, I think what's cool hearing you talk about this is like you get to be a major building block in their lives and careers. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're reaching them at an age. And I remember maybe not as well as I used to, but I remember being 19, 20 years old as an undergrad and mm-hmm. feeling in some ways kind of adrift till there was a professor that. Yeah, or or right. someone that kind right. of built a little direction into my life. Yeah. And maybe it was direction I already had that they helped yeah. refine. But it, working with undergrads and grad students yeah. is such a cool opportunity to to just help 
again, people find that type of expression and find that career path and all those things. And even if you're just like one small step in that ladder, being that step is important. It sure is, right? And these these um, lab groups can also function as really important like alt communities for students, right? So yeah, like creating a space that feels safe, right? That where where your students can come and hang out, not just do their research, but also be there, right? And feel as though they're in a place where they're supported um, can really make things totally different in for someone. Right. And, you know, maybe somebody's not necessarily going to be that person who goes Greek and does all that kind of other social stuff. Right. <laughs> but, but, but to have that sort of community within a lab where people feel like they're part of something. Right. Um, I've seen that make a really big difference for folks and you know, constantly trying to generate that kind of community feel in the lab. And, and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but but, they, but, you know, an undergrad lab space can be a really important place for, for students in their experience as a student. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Really cool. Well, Chris, did we leave anything out? I think we, we kind of covered a lot of cool stuff. Is there anything else you wanted to try to say before we were done? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I think we, I think we have, I just want to say um, that this is a great podcast, right? And, and I think it's like so informative and education. There's so much good about it. But I think the real secret is, is your voice, Vikram. <laughs> like you, that's like an old you've got an old school radio voice dulcet <laughs> dulcet tones dude dulcet well i appreciate that and i appreciate wow, you listening you just said that that was right there man you nailed it <laughs> it's funny you know and I'll, I'll i think I've, i may have told this story before i'll say it real quick before we wrap up but uh, i was an extension agent for about four years before i took this job and one thing that i managed to somehow get myself into you know because you get yourself in all kinds of weird stuff was i was a um weekly radio guest on two different shows for about two years. So I, you know, made literally hundreds of appearances on the radio. I did TV news and all that. And you kind of get trained into it a little bit. You find out how the, but, uh, you know, people keep saying that to me that you've got a a voice for radio and I'm, I always appreciate it. It's kind. (laughs) (laughs) Keeps me listening. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Chris, where, where can people find you? Where uh, where are you on the, the interwebs sure. if you want to be found? Yeah. So check, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Martine Botany uh, on Instagram, too, there with maybe less so. And then, uh, you know, on, of course, the Plants Are Cool 2 YouTube uh, channel. Um, and, you know, Google me. You find me in other other kinds of places. So that's where I'm at largely. Cool. Yeah. Good. Chris's TikTok coming soon. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I won't commit you to that. Got so much, so many video clips to work with. Loads. Oh gosh. Yeah. Limitless nonsense that you can yell about. Absolutely. Um, Chris, man, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. That was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you uh, just being on, just being a part of it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. To keep up this great work, this is such an important service to to all of us. So love that you're doing it. Thank you awesome well well thanks again for being here and thanks to all of you for listening uh y'all are the best there's you know you're the reason we do this kind of thing and uh do kind of communication and outreach and everything else so thanks for being a part of it too and uh we will talk to y'all next time see you folks y'all how great was that how great is chris i really enjoyed that episode and i hope you did too i also hope you'll go check out chris everywhere that he exists on the internet and go give plants are cool to a watch it's a lot of fun and i think it's a show that you're really going to enjoy on the youtubes on old youtube machine thanks again to the texas tech department of plant and soil science and forest proud for supporting and sponsoring the show and thanks most of all to you the listener for being a part of it y'all you know that it's an absolute pleasure to 
record the show for you. And I so much appreciate the feedback you give me, the friendship, um, just hanging out on Twitter and social media and all of the things. Y'all are great. And this is a real joy and pleasure in my life. So um, we'll be back next week with our next Tree Talk episode. And I don't know exactly what we'll be talking about, but something about trees. You'll find out soon enough. It's a super secret secret, even for me. That's the best kind of super secret secret. Keep being really cool plant people. Keep being kind to each other. If you haven't been kind to each other so far, maybe give that a shot. But you folks know how much I love you. I stay safe, stay kind, and we will talk soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.